Hey there, welcome to LSAT Demon Daily Digest. This is our recap of all the LSAT Demon Daily episodes from the week. I'm Ben Olson, that's Nathan Fox. Together we're the founders of LSATdemon.com and our weekly podcast, Thinking LSAT. Today we have special guest Rachel Gezersay on the show. Rachel is a trial attorney who specializes in catastrophic personal injury and wrongful death cases. She's also an adjunct professor at USC and the author of the Law Career Playbook. We were just interviewing you on the Thinking LSAT podcast, and we wanted you to come over here and share your wisdom with our LSAT Demon Daily listeners. Great. So thanks. Here. Let's hear it. <laughs> Give us your wisdom. <laughs> oh. What's your number one advice for anyone who's just starting this lovely journey? Or I don't know if lovely is the right word, but this journey. Well, you know, I think my, my, my number one piece of advice is, you know, the core tenet of my book and my program is the, you know, get, start doing informational interviews with attorneys who are actually practicing. Right. And if you know, if you know the kind of, if you're one of those special people, right. Cause this is not everybody who actually knows exactly what they want to do. Right. You know, exactly the kind of lawyer you want to be, you know, you want to be a trial attorney, or, you know, you want to work in entertainment or whatever it is then come up with a list of people doing the kind of work you want to do and reach out to them and meet them and start just, and look, it's uncomfortable. It's awkward. You know, maybe it's someone that you get so nervous and you're, you know, but those are muscles that you want to start learning how to flex now. Right. And even if it's the most awkward, horrific, just cringy situation, one of them, trust me, the next time will get better. Right. We all have to go through this. We're all, you know, I am, I do this work and I am such an introvert, right? And so for me, it's so hard to sort of put myself out there and flex these muscles. And I've had to learn how to do it. It's almost like building up a persona. But if you start doing it in these small increments and working on this daily, um, you will just get so much better at it. And you know the benefits are just immense. So that's, Let me make that's- some objections and see what you have to say. Cause I can imagine what are what people are gonna say, all right? Oh, that's a great idea, but I don't have time right now because I'm studying for the LSAT. Right, right. So, you know, I think time management is a skill, right? And starting small, right? It's not about doing 10 hours of this a day. It's about, you know, coming, if you come up with a list of 10 people, let's do one a day. And when I say do one a day, I mean, just write one email, one reach out email. And I have templates in my book of how to do this. You don't even have to come up with the writing. You can just plug in the specifics into the template, send that email out. So do one email a day. If that person responds back, then you have one interview a day, right? That you can do. And you just slowly sort of build a process by doing it this way. And like, trust me, once this works a couple of times, you're going to want to do more because it is a little bit addictive. It's a little bit addictive, especially as you're, you're, you know, getting into this journey, as you start to meet people, then that person's going to want to introduce you to more people. Right. And you will, will be more confident and you will find the time. And it's just about setting aside 10, 15, 20 minutes a day to start flexing these muscles and working on it. It's not a huge time commitment. That's awesome. Can't I, go ahead, Ben. Oh, I just, I, I was, I wanted to go back to this thing you had mentioned earlier, talking about how some of these things can be so, you know, cringy or embarrassing or what it is. Right. But it's like, if you think, if you, if you now see it as something you're going to have so many of these interviews, then 
yes, you can fail on so many of them. And you're also anyone who actually does this, right? I'm, I'm sure a ton of people are going to listen to this and do absolutely nothing, unfortunately. <laughs> but um, for those who actually start doing it, right? You, you make these mistakes now. You're not, no one's going to care. That person's never going to think about you again. They have a million things on their plate they got to get back to. Um, but make these mistakes now so that when you actually go get an interview in law school that matters, yeah. you're, you're not just <laughs> a little bit better. You're, you're astronomically better at this whole process because you've started these conversations with attorneys so many times, right? Yeah. You're now, you're the person coming in the room who's confident and that vibe is going to sell you, right? Like that, like, Hey, I understand how this works. I, I have some questions for you. You have questions for me. Um, I've made all these mistakes. <laughs> no, absolutely. It's the it's the years ago that muscle, right? Right. Yeah. You build this out in yourself, and you realize what your comfort level is. And you know, I tend to I get really, really nervous. And you know, early, early on, if I get nervous, then I tend to have diarrhea of the mouth, right? And just blah, 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 all this stuff comes out, you know. And in doing more and more interviews and learning how to edit myself and kind of have these conversations and talk about myself, that's a skill and you have to work at it. And by doing it in, in situations that don't matter as much, you're working that muscle and it's so beneficial. But I'm just gonna wait for OCI. Why don't I just wait for OCI and then the interviews will come to me? Right, so yeah, you can't across the board and I have heard this, I have students and have had students all over the country, OCI, while great that it exists, oftentimes just doesn't give students what, what, what they need to be able to get in front of these firms. You know, it's just, it's, these OCI interviews are very, very short, right? They're, sometimes they can be five minutes, 10 minutes. It's not allowing you to get your best foot forward with these firms. Maybe you don't even get access to the firms that you want and then boom, it's over and you've actually missed that window. But if you set this up beforehand, and you're connected with the people who work at these firms and you're self-generating interviews and opportunities, you control that. You control that narrative and you control that time more in a way. OCI, you don't control it all, right? So just waiting for that, it's very, very risky. Uh, what if someone said, but I don't know anybody who does the kind of work that I wanna do. Oh, right, people say that all the time. Most people don't, right? Most people don't know and that the beauty of the internet and sites like LinkedIn. Everyone who's listening to this right now needs to be on LinkedIn, have a LinkedIn account, not so much for your outward facing LinkedIn profile, but for the research tools that LinkedIn provides you and the ability to just search. You can do crazy intense searches to narrow down people doing the kind of work that you wanna do on LinkedIn. You get their email and you email them and you set up a 15 minute Zoom thing and that's how you start to meet people. You have the ability to do this. Right? Not everyone's gonna say yes, but because of Zoom and the capabilities of being able to meet people, somebody will, and it's a way to meet people and then that person will introduce you to people and it's a domino effect across the board. Look, it's uncomfortable. I mean, you know, I don't, it, this isn't, I, I, not everyone's an introvert like I am, but you know, certainly this doesn't come naturally, but that's why you gotta try it and you gotta do it. And I just am a huge believer that if you, you put it out there, something will come back to you, right? Some, some of this work will come back to you and be helpful. Here, here's a, here's an objection maybe. Um, okay. I can imagine myself getting one of these interviews, but what do I say? 
Right. So, you know, and I have the chapter in the book is has some of like the, the hardest and most challenging questions that come up in these interviews, even even in informational interviews, because it's funny, you know, an informational interview isn't a job interview, right? It's more for you to be a sponge and gather information, but you're still going to get these kinds of questions, right? And so preparing in advance and really thinking through some of the harder type you know, what do you, where, where do you see yourself in five years? Or what, why are you so interested in this? You know, thinking that through and doing your research will allow you to, you know, ask the, answer the questions and ask the right questions because you've thought it through in advance. Hmm. Yeah, for sure. The more you know about something, right, the more actually you realize what you don't know. Right. And you're probably in a better position to ask meaningful questions. Right, right. And it's the whole, it, it, look, always coming back and I tell my students, I actually have, when I do my PowerPoint um, presentation, I have a huge picture of a sponge. If you come at it thinking that you are going to learn from this person that you're meeting, that it's not so much about you, right? It's more about them and what knowledge they can bring. And then, you know, what you can learn and how they can be a mentor to you. It's a much easier way to step into those conversations, mm. right? Because people, they do, they, they've, They've trudged this hard road. They want to share their experience. And it's about tapping into that and being the sponge and letting them help you. Cool. We had a much longer interview on the other side, um, our other podcast, the longer form podcast called Thinking LSAT. You can go uh, check out that longer interview. Um, if you would like to reach out to Rachel, she's on Instagram, Instagram at Law Career Lab. She's on Facebook, Rachel Gezerse, G-E-Z-E-R-S-E-H. She's on LinkedIn. She uh, is on Twitter at Law Career Lab. And she's even said you can email her directly. That's Gezerse, G-E-Z-E-R-S-E-H at PSBlaw.com. You can also, um, we're going to have a class, uh, a free class on lsatdemon.com. All you're going to need is a free account. You can go to lsatdemon.com and you can look for the class that we're having. Um, we haven't even come up with a title yet, but we are going to have a class at some time in the future with Rachel Gezerse. Uh, basically, you're going to be looking to help people work their way through your book, right? Yeah. So get the Law Career Playbook. It's on Amazon. Start working your way through those worksheets uh, Rachel, you said earlier that the perfect time, the perfect student, you said, is what again? Who do you want? What's the perfect time to start early, working with you? Early days, you know, someone who is just starting to think about taking the LSAT, who's ready to commit to this journey um, of law school, like start flexing now, start flexing these muscles now, start building your network now, because it will only, it will bear huge fruit for you as things get harder and your time becomes less, <laughs> which is when you well, know, law school. That's the critical part, right? People complain about like, well, but I don't have time because I'm studying for the LSAT. Hold on a second. Maybe you should start this process before you start the LSAT process, because ultimately the LSAT is nothing if you don't get a job. Right. And you, you need to figure out that like, okay, I'm on a credible path toward a job. And if, you know, you, you start doing these informational interviews and you realize that it's not what you thought it was, or it's harder than you thought, or it's just not, you know, if it starts to feel like, oh, maybe this whole endeavor is not the right fit, then it'll be better that you never even wasted your time and money preparing for the LSAT. And I, I'm happy to talk myself out of LSAT business if it means that my students are ultimately gonna find more success or more happiness in their career and in their life. So yeah. 
you know, like if you, you don't have time to do this now, okay. Oh, so you're going to have more time as a 1L? No, no, never again. <laughs> you know, we're always telling people things out of their life to focus on the LSAT because the LSAT is the, the thing that's going to do the most to help them go to law school and go for free. Right. But I, I think what I'm thinking, what I'm hearing right now from Nathan and from you, and I have to agree with this, is that you do these informational interviews. You don't do a ton of them. You just you just start doing a little bit every day. They're going to do one of two things for you. They're going to push you away from this industry. You're going to say, oh, my God, I don't want anything to do with these kinds of people. I thought I did, but I don't. And then you're going to save all yourself that time and money. Or... They're going to provide you the fire, right? The motivation to really turn up your LSAT score because <laughs> you're like, oh, wow, I do want to do what this person is doing. And they had to go to a good law school. And now I can see the path and I can see how the LSAT plays a role in that. And so, yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more. This It's like little bits of information that end up being like immensely powerful. Absolutely. People have this amorphous, I want to be a lawyer because it seems like a good career. And I'm like, yeah, but okay, but who, what exactly do you want to do? Who's the lawyer that you're trying to emulate? What, what is that career path look like? Like who exactly are we talking about? And you don't have to name a name, but you should have a name in your head. There should be a real lawyer, not just a fantasy TV lawyer, um, there should be somebody who you're trying to emulate. And if it's just like, oh no, I just think, you know, I, I couldn't be a doctor. So I wanted to be a lawyer. Then that's just, <laughs> yeah. that's very unrealistic. And also Ben, don't you see, we see students who, and I mean, tragically, Rachel, you probably see them at USC law school as well. These people who are just kind of like, they're sadly on this path again, because they don't know what else to do. So they're just thinking like, well, I don't know. I mean, I'll work it out. I'll find something that's a good fit at some point. Mm -hmm. And they don't have that Ben said fire. Right. They're not inspired by anybody right. who has this actual job. They're just kind of like one foot in front of the other, just kind of slowly trudging along. What a miserable existence. And you could avoid that completely. Well, right. And that's, that's what I talked about this before. It's that there are so many miserable lawyers and I, life is too short. It's too short for that, you know, because then on the flip side, when you have a happy lawyer, who's fully fulfilled and doing everything that, you know, just use utilizing their entire skill set towards their daily work, it's a game changer. It's just the best thing. And that's, and I, I sit here today as that person, I am so happy and it, it took me a long time so don't you know a lot of the work that i do with the with the book and with trying to mentor people is to sort of save people from the mistakes i made <laughs> which is toiling too long in a job that wasn't a good fit awesome thanks so much yeah. for coming on the show we have an anonymous an email from an anonymous listener it says hello this is a generic question do y'all here at LSAT Demon have any suggestions on how to properly concentrate? Are there blog posts, podcast episodes, or lessons I can read slash listen slash watch on repeat? Hmm. 
I'm already a little <laughs> you worried. You hear it multiple times. <laughs> yeah, like what? <laughs> I mean, if you were concentrating, why would you need to read slash listen slash watch on repeat? How about Maybe we just? Maybe this is the core problem. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's that's what I'm getting at. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, anyway, I don't have trouble focusing on logical reasoning and logic games, but sometimes the reading comp passage I'm reading can be pretty freaking boring. Sometimes I can read three lines without even realizing that I'm not paying attention, and then I'll have to reread the whole thing. I hate it and try to avoid it, but it still does happen once every so often, especially, or should I say exclusively, when I'm doing natural science passages. So yeah, any advice, admonitions, your help will be much appreciated. That's from Anonymous. Well, I should take this moment to say that uh, we are on the verge of releasing your meditation into drilling. Oh, nice. So that'll probably happen today or tomorrow, actually, which and this is being recorded on March 22nd. So by the time this comes out, it should be there. Um, so that, so let me, uh, the way we envisioned this mm-hmm, yep. is if you're drilling in the demon yep. for like an hour, mm-hmm. you're going to get a little interrupt that says, hey, good job. Nice work. Notice yep. you've been sitting there for a whole hour straight drilling. Yep. Want to take a little break? And then we have a little meditation. Exactly. Soon to come, we're also going to have some uh, little stretches. Yes. (laughs) Now, now, if you don't like these things, you can skip them, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And you can set the duration in which how how frequently they appear. I did a little bit of research, and um, I came up with different numbers based on some random studies and landed on 40 minutes. So the default time is if you drill straight for 40 minutes, and that includes review, then it will pop up. But you can you can make that longer, shorter. That could just be one question, by the way. You that could be question, one question. You yeah. miss it, and then you really need to dig in. Or one reading comp passage, you read it, you maybe, you know, like this anonymous correspondent, it's a you have a hard time with it. You have to reread it. You struggle through the questions. You're reviewing. You're trying to figure it out. That's all really high quality, valuable use of your time, by the way. But then the demon breaks in after. Now, this is after you're done, right? When you click exactly. next. Yeah, absolutely. So instead of going to the next drilling question, it says, oh, and it's going to pop in a question that's actually a meditation. And this and is even a more valuable use, potentially, of your time. Absolutely. Because can, the. The purpose of this meditation is to get you to, you're just basically training your brain to focus, like training Mm -hmm. your brain, you're just calming yourself down to where you're going to just center and let everything else go and then focus on actual understanding of the next thing that comes up. Exactly. Now... I would also add, so this this meditation thing is going to happen, and uh, assuming you're in the demon and are drilling, then you will encounter it. Um, meditation is just good for becoming self-aware of your thoughts and how your thoughts can go off on tangents 
and how you can bring them back, and there's nothing wrong with that. I would say specifically for reading comp, I would stop thinking about your job as to read the passage, and I would start thinking about your job as to read the first sentence. You don't mm. need to get through that whole passage. You need to get through that first sentence. And then once you're done with that, you can turn your focus to the next sentence. Yeah, notice what um, Anonymous says. Sometimes I can read three lines without even realizing that I'm not paying attention. Mm -hmm. And then, and I was expecting Anonymous to say, and then I'll have to reread those three lines, but that's not what Anonymous said. Yeah. Anonymous said, and then we'll have to reread the whole thing. Yeah. Which, if this is happening in the middle of the passage or the end of the passage, yeah, then now we've got a real disaster on our hands. Because you really weren't paying attention. Exactly. <laughs> the whole time. Exactly. I think, I think that this problem, I think the problem is even worse than Anonymous thinks it is. Mm -hmm. I think that this problem has been happening from the very beginning, the very first sentence. I think you're not tuned in enough at the top of the passage. Yeah. I think Anonymous thinks that this is happening in the middle of the passage or the end of the passage. That's just where Anonymous is becoming aware. Exactly. Of the yeah. It's a symptom, not the cause. And the cause is I love what Ben just said. I'm going to steal that, Ben. I've never thought about it exactly that way before, but I'm going to start saying that in my classes. Your job is not to read the whole passage. Your job is to read the first sentence and comprehend it. And if you have to reread the first sentence in order to comprehend it, then you damn well better reread that first sentence and make sure you're understanding what's going on. Yeah. Once you've done that, then your job is to read the second sentence. Yep. <laughs> so that's that's what that's what anonymous needs to work on. It ain't about blog posts and podcast episodes and lessons and like learning how to concentrate. It's about doing a better job on your reading comprehension of just making sure that you're chewing your food before you swallow it basically. Yeah, and practicing concentration one sentence at a time. It's it's like you want to hear about how to concentrate as opposed to actually just trying to do it. Mm-hmm. That's the people don't, way to learn. Yeah. People, you know, they just, they persist in, it's like if, see, what I think anonymous, this is what, and this is what students commonly think. Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm going to concentrate. So I, I just need to learn how to concentrate while I read the passage fast. Because the clock's ticking. I've yeah. got four passages in 35 minutes and the clock's ticking. And so I need to get through this passage. It's like they have this default assumption that they have to read the passage fast no matter what. But then I also want to learn how to concentrate. It's like, I just don't know how to concentrate, especially when it's about natural sciences. I don't know how to concentrate while I go quickly <laughs> skim the passage and don't actually read it carefully. Yeah. You know, hey, you're making it, the challenge very difficult for yourself. You're like doing two things that are antithetical to each other. Yeah, it's just an impossibility. Yeah. Like students read the passage faster than I do. All the time. All the time. I take four to five minutes. Most yeah. people are done and they're in the questions. 
I'm the guy who doesn't really miss questions. I mean, I, from the first day of my LSAT prep, I hardly ever missed questions on reading comp. Yeah. And I never had a problem with time on reading comp. But paradoxically, students read the passage faster than I do. Yeah. And think they have a problem with speed. Yeah. Which they do because they read, they don't really read it carefully enough and don't actually understand it because they tried to go too fast. Yeah. Then it takes forever on the questions. Yeah. They waste time on the questions because they just didn't read the passage well enough to begin with. And they didn't read the passage well enough to begin with because they didn't read the first sentence well enough to begin with. Yeah. Thanks for writing in. I hope that helps. We have an email here from G. Hey, hi, friends. I hope you're doing well. So this might be an odd question, but I figured it would be helpful to get your take on this in case others find themselves in a similar boat. Um, by the way, that random last comment right there reminds me of once I was in Japan. I was in a car with a bunch of Japanese people, and I literally said in Japanese, we're all in the same boat. And they looked at me like I was... <laughs> A fish out of water. Like, what? no, we're in this. We're in the same, same we're car. In a car, dude. <laughs> and that's when I first realized that some of these things don't translate. <laughs> Anyways, sorry, gee, tangent there, but I still that was an aha moment for me. That's when Ben learned about idioms. Okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I am a full-time senior HR manager at one of the universities whose law school I plan to apply to but not directly tied to the law school itself. I like the work just fine, and the function in general has, been, has made me certain that I would love, and that's italicized and underlined, <laughs> internal counsel forward slash employment law as a career. Okay. However, I'm exhausted. Uh, this that's, is italicized and bold. And bold. <laughs> yeah, we've got lots of different font combos going on here. Semicolon. Oh I get up early on weekdays to do a section, go into work, try to sneak into live classes during the day, and then come back in the evenings to maybe hop onto a class for a half hour and catch up on the rest of the recording the next day. So talking about our live, demon live classes, mm -hmm. and watching half of the class, participating in half of the live class, and then watching the rest of it uh, recorded because we post all the, all the classes. Okay. Got it. I'm noticing my studies start to simmer out and some days I just flat out cr crash and burn while I'm doing much better overall. I've been struggling to get a test in on the weekends for well over a month. I've considered resigning so that I can focus on the LSAT more parentheses. I already do some consulting on the side that would allow me to get by even if it's not full-time work. But I'm concerned that if I were to leave and then apply several months later, it would reflect poorly on me. Do I just ride it out, see where I get in, and then leave before school starts? Or is it worth taking the burned bridge risk if it means I can absolutely ensure I'm in the mid-170s when I sit for the test? Okay, considering my 12-year-old 3.3 undergraduate GPA, thanks pre-med and STEM, a high score is the only thing that starts to trigger full rides at the T25s and the T20s I like. And <laughs> okay. G's saying that based on our scholarship estimator. That's at lsatdemon.com slash scholarships playing with uh, that 3.3 UGPA. 
and various LSAT scores, G is convinced that it's going to take a uh, something in the mid 170s to get those full rides at the right kinds of schools. Got it. Sure. Yep. I'd love your thoughts on this. If you're up for considering it, you're the best. And thanks so much. Um, well, thanks for writing in G. I, I get the feeling that you're putting too much stock into your work and your leaving. I mean, the most important thing is your LSAT score. I'm not saying that you need to leave your job to get a high LSAT score, but I guess I wouldn't, if your concern is how it looks when you apply to this school, I just, I don't know. People quit their job and they go do other things. Uh, the thing that's going to reflect poorly on you is a poor LSAT score. For sure. I mean, there's that, no question there, right? <laughs> yeah. Like that's a certainty. They, they're, they're barely even going to look at you. You know, these schools that the ones that you're talking about, yeah, I'm imagining that, you know, with a 165, they're not even going to really take a serious look at you. Yeah. Like, well, you're below my median LSAT and you're definitely below my median GPA and next. But if you apply with a 175, then they're going to be like, oh, shit. OK, mm -hmm. splitter. This person's above my 50th percent above my median LSAT. And yeah, um, Okay, so the old GPA, and then, you know, maybe they, they dig into it a little further and they go, oh, wait, but that was pre-med and it was STEM and it was 12 years ago and 175, look at that. So, yeah, you're like looking at these minutia, but there's just the one big obvious thing. Like I, I mean, that, so that's my overarching advice is do whatever you have to do to make sure that the LSAT's right. Now, is that leaving the job? That's what I'm wondering. I mean, it sounds like you're trying to squeeze in too much in your day. Can you leave a little bit earlier? Can you be a little bit more effective at work so that you can leave earlier or just kind of put your foot down and leave? Um, maybe you're doing yeah. too much LSAT studying. Like it feels like well, you're doing a class during the day and then you're trying to do another class at night. Yeah, G, well, well G said a, a section on weekdays. Yep. And then classes during the day, class in the evening, and then recorded class the next... Yeah, I mean... Okay, so let's cut some stuff out here. G says, I've been struggling to get a test in on the weekends for well over a month. I think that that means a full-length timed test. Yep. G, I don't care. Don't, I don't, don't worry about that. You're already doing timed sections, it sounds like, most weekdays. Getting up probably early. too many. Why don't you? Well, do yeah, that? but but let's let's deal with that <laughs> in a second because I mean I'm presuming that if you're doing a section every morning mm -hmm. before work, yep, then you don't need to do a full test on a weekend ever. Like you're already good. Like if you're let's say you're doing it Monday through Friday, a timed section before work. Yeah, you're that doing takes some discipline. One and a half tests at least a week. Exactly. Yeah. You're already, I mean, it, and so, you know, add up your scores from those tests or those sections, and that's plenty for diagnostic purposes. It's plenty for real practice purposes. Five sections a week is all, that's plenty. I mean, and, and even if that was only four or three, I would still say it's probably plenty. Three might be the minimum. You know, one section of games, one section of LR, one section of reading comp every week, timed. But yeah. whether you do them back to back to back or whether you spread them out across three different days, 
I don't care at all. So you're fine on that. I, I would also add, while we're talking about that, if you do three sections from the same test, you can merge them in the daemon, and it will make it into a full-length test. Yeah, and you give your you score. your 120 to 180 score. Okay, so we can cut out a little bit of that, and you can you can stop worrying about this you know, stress of, I haven't been able to do a full test on the weekends. Yeah, okay, who cares? Yeah, classes. Why are you sneaking into live classes during the day and doing classes in the evening and watching half of a recorded class the next day? That sounds like maybe you're doing too much of the live classes and, you know, uh, maybe maybe pick and choose a little bit more judiciously what you're going to do. A hundred percent. I mean, I think... <laughs> What G is doing here, which is super common, is confusing the process with the, um, the end result. And, and somehow, you know, checking these boxes off every day, like, oh, I did a section in the morning. Oh, I did a live class during the day. Oh, I did half of a class at night. Yeah. You're, you're feeling like accomplished or that you're making progress because you're doing those things, where yeah. in reality, the 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 most consistent and easiest way to make progress is to do one question and yeah. make sure you understand and, it. Right. And so G never said anything about drilling. Nope. Which I'd rather you, you drill in the morning because then you could do it in 15 minutes instead of 35 plus review. Like I that I don't like thing. people studying while they're tired. Well, G didn't even say reviewing those timed sections, right? So yeah. I hope that you're thoroughly reviewing every mistake you made during each of those time sections. But if you're getting up, like maybe you have just 35 minutes yep, and you're like doing the section and then you're like checking your answers to see which, how many you got right. And then you're rushing off to work. Well, then you've got a task still to do, which is to go review all of those questions that you missed. I hope you're doing that. Yep. If you're not doing that, then you need to, you know, it's like, I don't want you in my live class. I, I mean, I do. I want everybody. I like having a full class. I'm sure yeah. you do too, Ben. Sure. It's nice having the energy of like lots of people in class, yeah. but I don't want you in class if you're not thoroughly reviewing every mistake you made outside of class. Yeah. That's just a waste of time. That's like, that's not efficient. I don't want you there just sitting there you know, trying to get some laughs out of my LSAT class. I want you to get real understanding from the LSAT, which requires you, you have to confront every mistake. Yeah. Okay. Maybe last issue here with G. This idea about burning bridges. Notice G doesn't even work at the law school. G works at a university that happens to have a law school. So, I mean, like, do you think that UCLA law gives a shit if a UCLA undergrad HR manager ha happened to quit their job before then applying to UCLA law? I mean, uh, the, only <laughs> the only downside here is that if you, quote, burn bridges, you're going to lose that letter of recommendation. 
right? Like, okay, now you can't seek a letter of recommendation from them, but I don't see why you even have to burn bridges. So yes, I don't think the, to answer your question, I don't think the law school cares about some employee at the university, but I don't even think the law school cares about an employee at the law school unless they specifically know them. And even then it's how you leave. Give them your two weeks notice Say, hey, look, I got stuff I got to do. I really have enjoyed this work, but I, I've got to go on to something else. This happens all the time in the economy. And you move on. If you just like leave in a, in a rude or quick or unprofessional way, you don't help the next person coming in or whatever, then yeah, I think you've burned a bridge. But I don't see why you need to burn a bridge just to quit. Yeah, I right. Leaving jobs is not burning bridges. You're an HR manager. You you know that there are some people who tell everybody to fuck off on their way out the door. Okay, that's burning bridges. But you're not going to do that. You would leave in a professional manner. You're allowed yeah. to leave. I I don't know. And I mean as a manager, Ben, I think you can probably attest to this like you just there's a tendency to you're going to respect people more who draw boundaries around what they're willing to do for you anyway. Mm-hmm. So that's like, what about the What about a middle ground here of can you cut back your hours? Can you go in there and ask them? Can you go in there and just tell them, just tell them you're studying for the law school admission test and you need more time in your life and you love your job and you're good at your job and you want to keep doing it, but you don't have 60 hours a week to give them anymore. Or Mm -hmm. you don't even have 40 hours a week to give them anymore. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, and the good point there is if they say no, then you're, it's like you're leaving regretfully. It's almost partly their fault. (laughs) Yeah. It's like you got out the fire hose and sprayed down the bridge before you walked across it. You know, it's (laughs) like, I'm not burning this. I, I want to save the bridge at all costs, but, uh, I got, I have to do this thing. And is there anything, any way we could work something out? Yeah. You know? And then if you have to leave, you have to leave. But I don't know. I just, um, I, I, I have specific information about someone who applied to a law school that they actually worked at, got waitlisted, kept studying for the LSAT, came back with like seven more LSAT points. Maybe it was a little more than that. But they just got in this cycle. <laughs> That's mm. somebody who works at the school. Yeah. And is well regarded at the school, but, but their connection at the school didn't do shit for them when they didn't have the right LSAT. No, <laughs> the law school is facing enormous pressure to maintain their LSAT and GPA ranges. Deans yeah. are fired when yeah. those numbers drop too significantly. Well, and this was an applicant at, it's not even a, it's not, it's a top three school. Mm-hmm. So it's like they're not even really under that much of that kind of pressure necessarily. Maybe they are, but I mean, on some level, they have to maintain it with seven points. That might, yeah, who knows? Yeah, and it was just like, well, okay, but with a one seventy, you're not really. It's not impressive to us. And then with a one high one seventies, oh, okay. Well, there's, there's the two pressures, right? One, there's the selfish one, like we got to maintain our scores for our own backing. But as we always talk about, there's also this 
maybe, I don't know if it's benevolent or what, but they're concerned about your ability to succeed at the law school. And when you have that lower LSAT score, they're less confident in that ability. So they might be inviting you to fail and they don't want to do that. Yeah. Oh yeah. There's, there's good reasons and bad reasons why they care so much about the LSAT. Yeah. I mean, there's better and worse reasons, I guess I should say. Yeah. But yeah, they want to know if you can cut it and they want to know what you're going to do to their public profile. And the high LSAT tells them both of those things. Yep. So yeah, I, I think, gee, if you have to leave this job, you have to leave this job. But seems like there's some other alternatives too for getting more efficient and maybe cutting back. Today we have an email from Brenda. Says, hi, I wanted to ask you about letters of recommendation. I am working a full-time job, but I'm thinking of looking for a part-time job, which means I would leave my current job. However, <laughs> okay. <laughs> I was reading that like kind of intentionally. People need to read their shit out loud though, right? Because yeah. if you, re- if, if Brenda, thank you, Brenda, for writing in, I'm going to make fun of your writing now. If you would, if, if Brenda would have read that out loud, I think she, her ear would have caught the job, job, job. job. And yeah. then it just, it's like, you, it's like, I can tell that you probably didn't read it out loud because if you did, I don't, I, I can't imagine you would have left that in like that. It just, what, is there a name for it? Yeah. The, it's a, I just looked this up too. Isn't it, um, oh. On a on a mountapia or something? No, no, oh, that's that? like bam, boom, biff. That's like those Batman cartoons. Where Alli- it's the alliteration? Or? No, that's starting the same. <laughs> I think it might be euphony. <laughs> okay. Throw out um, all these random. Oh no, euphony is the quality of being pleasing to the ear, especially through a harmonious combination of words. Okay. Well, that's getting close, but the thing is that the, it's not actually pleasing to the ear to hear that. It's kind of, it's repetitive and kind of a little, it's not boring, but it's like just kind of one note. It's the same note over and over. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, there's nothing wrong with it, Brenda, so it's fine. However, I would want to get a letter of recommendation from my current employer before I leave. Let's say I obtain my letters between May and July of this year. If I submit my application, let's say December of this year with the November LSAT, uh uh-oh, do the dates on the letters matter? Worst case scenario, I would submit my application in February of 2023. Ooh. My concern is if I request the letters, do the dates on the letters of recommendation matter? Thank you, Brenda. So Brenda, Let's put the lecture about your writing aside. And we're also going to put the question about dates on your letters of recommendation aside. Because Ben's about to give you a lecture on a different topic. Yeah, well, (laughs) I was going to quickly say that the letters don't matter. And this just makes me think about, sorry, the dates on the letters don't matter. Um, In part because the letters themselves don't matter. I mean, I feel like we're reading this email, and this is not uncommon, Brenda, but it's like people are hyper-concerned about the wrong things. Yep. Right? They're not concerned about their GPA enough, but if that's set in stone, then I guess there's nothing to be concerned about it now. They're not concerned about their LSAT score enough. They're not concerned about when they apply. (laughs) Right. You know, and maybe, I got to say, Ben, I... I don't believe anything that the law schools 
say, I mean, I believe what Dean Z at University of Michigan says, because she seems like she's a straight shooter. I don't believe what most law school admissions folks, whether they work at the law school or they used to work at the law school and now they work in admissions consulting. I just don't believe what most of these folks say because I feel like it's a sleight of hand type of a thing where they, they get, they get applicants thinking about personal statement, letters of recommendation. Let's get the ball rolling on these other app, these other elements of your application because they're in a rush to get you to apply, but also because it's like they they don't want to talk about the thing that they can't do anything about, which is your LSAT score. Mm-hmm. And it's such a powerful lever on your application, but they can't, it's not their domain. They suck at the LSAT themselves. Otherwise they wouldn't be working in law school admissions. And they, they, they don't want to talk about that. Cause that's, that, that's like scary to them. They can't do it. They, they, and I, I don't know. I think that they almost think that there's nothing that can be done about that. Oh, there's a strong belief of that, right? Like, yeah. Pre-law advisors say this all the time. Like, oh, right. don't take it again. Or if you take it again, the most you could possibly improve is two points. And right. I think that all comes from the study that was conducted by LSAC, which showed that people who repeated the test went up on average two points. But <laughs> as we as we know, there's a big difference between the group of people who did absolutely nothing between those two tests and people who actually did something. Well, that's also like probably mean improvement. Maybe Just, it was median improvement, sure. but it ignores the, it, 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 so like, right. But even if that was the mean and the mm-hmm. median improvement, mm-hmm. There still is some section of the of the people who improved by like ten points that you're just like they changed their lives, yeah. And you're just so focused on the oh well you know on average like people don't improve so there's nothing that can be done. It's like yeah. no, but even in your own study, I feel like this is an LSAT logical reasoning question now. Even in your own study, I'm sure that there was this big chunk of people who did improve by a life changing amount. Absolutely. And Putting that aside, like most people don't do jack shit between their tests. So, okay, they didn't. Im- oh, you mean they did the exact same thing and they didn't improve? Oh, shocker. Yeah. Well, you're also, you're only looking at official LSATs, whereas a lot of people, you know, they take a diagnostic test, a practice test, and they get a score. And then they, they hear or get wind of that, that idea of a two-point increase and they think that that applies to them. But the reality is the study was only looking at people who took it officially. So how many of those people had actually taken it unofficially and then ended up with a much higher score? And maybe, yeah, they took it again and their score didn't improve that much, but they're already way higher than where they were when they started. Yeah, so, I mean, <laughs> and, and we get emails every day from people who improved by... 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 points. But even even 30. I mean, (laughs) I remember when one of my students who actually became a tutor for me had improved by 31 points, and I just never, ever, ever saw that again until the last couple years. And we've seen that a couple times. And it's like, okay, that was just unbelievable, unimaginable. (laughs) Yeah. So... Anyways, yeah, people people improve left and right. I mean, our students improve by life changing amounts yep. all the time. Uh, in fact, 
I don't even want to work with you if if you don't if you're not open to the possibility of changing by a life improving by a life changing amount. Like mm-hmm. I, I don't want I don't want your business. Like I don't want to help you get five points improvement so that you squeak in the back door of some bullshit law school. I want to give you fifteen points so that you get a full ride at that bullshit law school. Mm-hmm. Or else I'd, I would prefer that you go prepare elsewhere. Like I, I want, I really want, like if, I, if I'm not going to change your life for the better, then I don't want your business. Because I definitely don't want to change your life for the worse, mm-hmm. which is exactly what I'll be doing if I get you from a 145 to a 150. Like yeah. that would be hurting you. But getting you from a 145 to a 165, now I'm helping you. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, so back to Brenda. So three most important things, your UGPA, your undergraduate GPA, your LSAT score, and when you apply. Um, talking about applying in December yeah, means that's you're mix. already <laughs> really late. And then a February is just is inconceivable, right? That's just even further behind the eight ball. And it's like, what? But yeah. if she's listening to the law schools... Yeah. They're like, no, no, our priority application deadline, one of our early admissions deadlines is May 1st. Yep. And it's like, okay, that's bullshit. That is not any kind of early application. They can call it whatever they want, but that's not early. Most no. people who are going to go to law school in 2023 already know exactly where they're going I mean, you know, I heard yesterday from somebody who got into Harvard Mm -hmm. who and that, you know, that was like their final round of admissions decisions coming out on March 22nd. Yeah. This Brenda is like worst case scenario. I would apply in February of 2023, which what? No. Oh, my God. Like, that's so, so ridiculously late in the cycle. By the way, this this student who found out yesterday that he got into Harvard he applied in September and has been waiting since then for the decision from Harvard. Yeah. <laughs> and it's Harvard. So we're <laughs> Yeah. We're talking about a place where you're willing to wait and you're probably not going to get a scholarship because you well you, they only do need-based um financial yeah. aid anyways. So I yeah. I mean, the long and short of this is don't worry about your letters. If you can get a letter, great, get it. And if it's dated in May or July or June, Great. I don't care. All they're doing when they look at your letters of recommendation is making sure that you're not a psycho. They're making sure that you're not one of these people who is like such a, such a psychopath or sociopath or whatever the definition is where you, you asked someone for a letter and that person actually hates you and you don't even realize it. Yeah. If you cannot find one living soul on a planet of 8 billion people to endorse you, there's a problem. Otherwise, they've got so many better data points. They And the data points that really matter are your LSAT and your undergraduate GPA. Then they're going to read your personal statement. Then all these other things are just ticking off boxes. Yep. You're going to need two, two letters from people who respect you and are going to say nice things about you. And it does not matter what the date is on those, applica- on those letters. But the date of the applications does matter. I mean, last year, Ben, we had people who had full rides in hand in September for the following September. Yep. So that, and that's not at every school, but it is at some schools. 
And Brenda, if you apply in December or if you apply, God forbid, in February, I think all you're doing is lining up so that you can pay tuition, pay, pay for the scholarships of the people who applied before you. Yep. At that point, they're running. Uh, it's not that they're running out of dollars, but they're they're um, they're running up against the costs that they face as an institution, and they want to cover those costs by somebody's tuition. <laughs> so they they can't continue yeah. giving out the free rides. So yeah, now they have it's to like, pay for it, yeah, that. Yeah, it's like they run up their credit card in the beginning <laughs> of the application cycle. Yeah with all of these scholarships that they give out because there's a feeding frenzy at the very beginning of every admission cycle. And I just, I'm, we're in the business of getting people to go to law school for free. I, I, get, I mean, I get people don't like, we get criticism. People are like, Oh, they're wrong about admissions. They don't know what they're talking about. It's like, okay, well, hmm, yeah. But what about the hundreds of students that we sent to law school for free? Yeah. <laughs> so I, whatever, if you don't want to go for free, then don't listen to us. That's fine. But if you, if you want to listen to us, then I hope you are buying in on the idea that you're going to go for free. And if you're going to go for free, then you need to follow our advice, or at least you'll be putting yourself in the best position to go for free. If you follow our advice, Yeah. apply early. There's a feeding frenzy. Law schools are out there trying to fill their classes with qualified applicants. They don't want their medians to go down on their 509 report. So they have to go out there and try to poach students with high LSATs. And if you apply early with the right LSAT, then they're going to make you offers. And then at the end of the cycle, the people who apply in December or the people who apply in fucking February, you might get in because they need somebody to pay for all those scholarships. But the, the odds of you getting a scholarship with that late of an application, the, the odds diminish significantly because at some point they have to start paying the bills. Yeah. All right. Anyways, good luck, Brenda. I hope that's helpful or at least reorients you in terms of your timeline. Um, focus on your LSAT score and get that as high as you possibly can. Then take the test and then apply in the next September, whatever it is. <laughs> it's, I, I, we're not trying to do a bait and switch. I hope everybody's clear about that. I mean, well, you know, Brenda emailed daily at lsatdemon.com. We are in the LSAT business, to be clear. But, you know, she, she wrote us asking, these, asking questions about letters of recommendation, and it's like, we can talk to you about that, but we would prefer to talk to you about the thing that is vastly more important, which is get the right LSAT and apply at the right point in the cycle and play the game correctly. Play the game, yeah. Yeah. We have an email here from Ben. Sweet. Hi. First of all, I love the demon. Well, Second, you made it. Of course you... <laughs> yeah. Um, thanks for putting my email on the show, Nathan. I appreciate that. Second, I surf, I suffer from ADHD and have been pre-approved for extra time on the official tests. Do you have any tips for a test taker with ADHD, specifically a processing disorder? Thanks, Ben. Um, boy, my first advice for anyone with ADHD or any sort of learning difference would be to get extra time, which you've gotten so that's good and then i would say practice with that extra time you can set that in the demon by the way by going to the advanced settings page and telling it hey this is the accommodations i have that adjusts all the formulas to now consider your 
to, to now calculate your timing and so forth based on your accommodated time. Um, but other than that, I think our advice still comes down to make sure you understand why the wrong answers are wrong and why the correct answers are correct. Do you have any specific advice for ADHD? Well, I have a book recommendation, which I got from you. Okay. And it is a book called ADHD 2.0. Yep. I read half of it last night. Wow. Okay. I, by the way, I got to give a shout out to uh, our listener and student, Angie, who finally got me on board with Libby. Mm. I've had a, I've had a Kindle. I've had a Paperwhite for a long time, and I know that it's awesome. Mm. But I also like the idea, I guess, of the hardcover books. It's just kind of nice to have a book and see the pictures and the feel of it and everything. Like I, I like books. Sure. And I like libraries. I like the idea of the library. Hmm. And I, I've been yelling for you know years about how awesome it is to have a library card. And no, I mean, you can just, you could go online and you can order any book you want and they'll deliver it to the brand, your local library branch and you go pick it up. Mm-hmm. And that's all true. And it's all awesome. And it's nowhere near as awesome as Libby. Libby so is, Libby is fucking um, incredible. Is that Kindle's library or something? It, no, it's well, it's not a Kindle. <clears throat> excuse me. I don't think it's a Kindle thing. Okay. It's Overdrive. I think it's connected to Overdrive. Have you heard of Overdrive? No. It's just this like system that libraries use so that mm. people can check out digital content. Okay. And I have two library cards. I live on a county line. Mm-hmm. And so I have a library in one county and I have a library in another county okay. and I can look at each system and I can check out, you know, have books delivered to my local branches of libraries. Yeah. yeah. But what Libby is, I couldn't fucking believe it, man. There's a book that I've been waiting to get in hardcover that I have not been able to get for like yeah. a month. Mm hmm. I finally got on board with the idea of, well, check out Libby. Okay. I get my phone. I go yeah. to the app store. I look up Libby, L-I-B-B-Y. Okay, I download it in 30 fucking seconds. Ben's going to do it right now as we speak. Yep. I download the Libby app in 30 seconds. Yeah. It searches and finds my library for me. I put in my library card number. You do have to have a library card, but... I believe you can also apply for a library card, I believe, through the Libby app. You then put in your library card number. Maybe you have a pin or something. There might be a little couple hoops you have to jump through to get it connected. I, But I'm telling you, in like 45 seconds, I had downloaded Libby, connected my local branch, request, found the book, and delivered to Nathan's Kindle. <laughs> it fucking delivered the book electronically to my Kindle. And I swear to God, the whole thing took 60 seconds. And I've been waiting for them to finally deliver a copy to my local branch, which then I would have to drive down there and go pick up. And it's nice to get some human interaction. I got to be honest. It's like, it is nice to walk into the branch and, you know, see a human and say, Hey, I've got a pickup. How are you? You know, and like get <laughs> whatever. But, uh, also, I never would have read half of this book last night if it weren't for Libby. Oh, that's cool. That's really cool. I just downloaded it. 
if I do have a library card, I've lost it. So I will give it a whirl. You can, oh, by the way, you can you can get library cards at any book at any library anywhere. Mm. You don't have to be like a resident of that place to get a oh, library okay. card. Yeah, yeah. And I now have connected both of my local county, you know, so I've got like two counties. And if I ever need any more, I think I can just like next time I'm in San Francisco, I can like just go get another renew my San Francisco library card and then be connected to that library system. Yeah, yeah. And borrow digital content and have it delivered auto magically straight to my Kindle. It's just incredible. Anyway, I read half of this book, ADHD 2.0. Yeah, yeah, good. Which you recommended to me. Yep. What did you, did you f make it all the way through the book finally? And what did, did you think yeah. about it after you recommended it? Um, I, <laughs> geez, you know, I don't remember as much as I would have wished. I wish I would have remembered, but I, 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 I guess I walked away from that book thinking, okay, so it won't. ADHD is a thing, obviously. I knew that, but medication is a serious option. But if you do it, you want to do it targetedly. And there are a bunch of other things you can do to, in your environment to cope with and deal with ADHD. I don't know. I just, I thought there was a lot of options. I, I liked getting that message. Yeah. So my first best piece of advice, I think, well, yeah. Ben already said, Hey, if you can get accommodated, go get accommodated because yep. they don't deny people for really any reason, but they certainly don't deny people for ADHD. Yeah. So Ben, our correspondent, Ben, you should definitely, well, you've already been pre-approved for extra time. So you should start practicing with your extra time. You did that. That's great. You should read this book because you need to be able, I mean, you have to learn how to manage this yourself. Mm -hmm. So if you haven't already read a book about ADHD, like you shouldn't be asking random people who don't know what the fuck they're talking about for, the, for, for help with your disorder or difference or whatever the hell you want to call it. I mean, yeah. we are well-intentioned and we want you to be successful and we will give you the best advice we possibly can. I am doing that by telling you, read this book and figure out what things you need to do. Because, mm -hmm. you know, it's like I shouldn't be telling you the things that are in the book. And maybe you have read the book, in which case, forgive me. But if you haven't read the book, it's your thing and you need to take control of it. So, you know, tip for a test taker with ADHD read this book or whatever other books about mm -hmm. ADHD yeah. and, you know, teach yourself to fish. <laughs> There's one thing that the demon already does automatically that this book specifically recommends, which is to find your right difficult. Yeah. It talked about how people with, you know, and I gotta be honest, I, a lot of, I, I was reading this book. I couldn't help but think like, well, do I have ADHD? Because it seems to fit like the human condition. Yeah. Is this the book that talked about vast? I feel like this is, I got it did. Fami yeah. Familiar with vast, which is, so, I can't remember that? what that stands for. Again, Me either. But, but it, it's basically uh, people who have vast are people who don't have the, the brain difference that causes ADHD but they have symptoms like ADHD because of the environment that we all live in today. 
with this bombardment of information, uh, right? Social media, constant connection to the phones. It, it, if people give into that, and so many of us do, um, we end up getting symptoms like ADHD. So these people think they have ADHD, but they actually don't have that brain, physical brain difference. So that what they have is vast, or at least that's what this book was saying. Got it. Yeah, I, I mean, like more than half of the symptoms, more than half of the descriptors in this book of like what it's like to have ADHD. I was like, yep, I got that. I got that. I got this other thing. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. But one of those things was if it's too easy, you're going to get bored. And if mm -hmm. it's too hard, you're going to just give up. Yep. And I guess that's worse in people who have ADHD, or at least according to my reading of this book. If that's true of you, correspondent to the show, Ben, then you need to make sure that you're at your right difficult. Mm -hmm. And the demon drilling does that automatically. So LSAT demon watches your progress and when you hit drill, it's going to present you with challenges that it has determined based on your study history are appropriate for your level. And as Ben said, if you, if you put extra time in your practice sections and practice tests in the demon, that's your personal settings in the demon. If you put extra time, then even when you're drilling, it's going to know that you're an accommodated student. And so it's going to monitor you and it's going to, then when you drill, it's going to give you challenges, keeping in mind all of your right and wrong answers in your study history and how long it took you to answer those questions. And it's going to try to present you with just right challenges, which what is that like around 80%? Like it's going to try right. to keep you mm -hmm. right 75. around yep. 75%. So it's good. Mm -hmm. It wants you to miss one out of four questions. And so your job then is to be like, fuck you, LSAT demon. I'm not going to miss one out of four questions. I'm going to get them all. I'm going to get them all right. Yep. And then the idea there is that you're now at this like just right level of difficulty that hopefully will keep you engaged. Yeah. Um, the one other thing that I took away from the book, and I, again, I've only read half of it. I'll uh, report back when I read the rest of this book. It's something that I've been wanting to know more about for a long time. Yeah. It went on and on, I thought, very powerfully about the healing power of connection. Ah, yes, I do remember that now. It Love talked about... And <laughs> relationships, yeah. Yeah, well, it, it talked a lot about um, why people struggle with life. Hmm. And... I think it, I mean, it's in a book about ADHD, so it must be suggesting that problems in your childhood could have contributed to your ADHD. Well, it did specifically say like, um, you might have genetic predisposition to ADHD and then various things that happened to you in your childhood caused those genes to express themselves. It talked about epigenetics a lot and how we, you know, you might have these genes. For example, you could have gene genetic predisposition to alcoholism, but mm -hmm. it never surfaces itself un until you have these childhood experiences. And lots of them are related to a lack of connection. Mm. And that can happen even in your adult life. 
the point of it all was, you know, and, and I think it was a lot of it was oriented toward how to support kids with ADHD. Yeah, this book is really probably written to parents right. of children with ADHD. But, you know, uh, our kid, our, our students are um, frequently like borderline actual ch- children, <laughs> um, yeah. you know, in that they're in um, late adolescence, let's call it college. And, um, you know, even if you're a young professional in your 20s, I don't know, it, that's. So it doesn't matter. The advice is the same, right? Yeah. No matter all the connections, uh, do these things that help you reduce distraction. Um, yeah. Yeah. But the connection part, uh, it just, I mean, it, it's the most powerful part of the book that I've read so far. And it's a book mm-hmm. specifically about ADHD, but it was a chapter that had almost nothing to do with ADHD. It was just basically, we all need connections in our lives. Mm-hmm. And so you should do, you should do things that create meaningful or even casual connections in life. Mm -hmm. So one of the examples was go to the local coffee shop. And when you go to the local coffee shop, say hi to everybody. Mm -hmm. It's such a simple thing, but it's like, it's a thing that we're just kind of shit, especially during COVID we're trained not to do. Yeah. You know, during COVID it was like, let's all mask up and let's just keep our distance and let's make sure, Oh, well you can't talk to somebody because then you're spraying COVID in their face. You know, we have to keep the distance. I would almost guarantee that there's been uh, like outbreaks of ADHD in the last couple of years because of that distancing. I bet every problem, every social problem I bet got worse during this like forced disconnect that we had to have. Yeah, well, there's been a lot of problems. I mean, I, just the other day I was hearing about how violence is apparently up in schools and um, dis- even during the pandemic when the percentage of students at school was lower. So yeah. the number of violent incidences were up and it's just like people are stressed out. They're not connected. Yep. They're disconnected. There was a headline in the Times today about how deaths due to alcohol spiked during the mm. first year of the pandemic. All sorts of these problems yeah. happen due to um, isolation. And um, yeah, apparently it can be very helpful for people with ADHD to make sure that they're getting support and love and connection wherever they can find it. Yep. Along so, with everybody else, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Along with everybody else, which I mean, again, like the book made me think that like everybody has ADHD or symptoms of, or, you know, or that <laughs> sure. vast or whatever you're calling it, the mm-hmm. very similar thing to ADHD. Anyway, read the book for yourself, Ben, and uh, see what you think. I'll, I will reread the rest of this and report back on some future episode. Cool. And I'll get Libby. So it's a win um, all around. Win all around. Yeah. Thanks for listening to the LSAT Demon Daily Digest. You can email daily at lsatdemon.com if you'd like to ask us a question or share some LSAT or law school admissions news. Thanks for listening.